Howdy, folks. You are tuned in to the Double-Edged Sword program right here on the fine family of Divine Mercy Catholic radio stations, 105.7 KMDG Hayes, 88.1 KRTT Great Bend, 101.7 KJDM Lisbork Salina, 89.1 KGOH Colby, and the station where it all started, 88.1 KVDM Hayes. Here on the Double-Edged Sword program, we'll listen to Father Fred Gatchett as he uses these Catholic airwaves to cut to the heart of a deceptive culture. I am Father Fred Gatchett, your host for the program for today. And um, today, I'm, we're going to look at the, at the idea of just kind of what makes right right we'll and what makes wrong right wrong. You have been listening I find to it remarkable Gadget, that there, this seems to be something that um, there really has a lot of folks kind of perplexed. Um, sometimes it's, it's people who are just in, in a total state of rebellion against God and against any, any kind of authority that would seem to have some kind of a claim on their behavior. Usually these people, you know, they work in the media, they work in intelligentsia and so on. And the way you'll understand them, that you understand that you're talking to one of them is when they such, to say such things as, I'm educated, I make my own choices. Um, that 5,000-year-old Bible that you have was written by old right men now. a long we'll time ago, and it's just full of fairy tales, and I don't have to, have to submit myself to that. And so that's, that's the one thing that you'll hear. The other thing, I remember some time ago, they were, somebody was doing kind of a, you know, the person on the street interview, and they were at Notre Dame, a supposedly Catholic university. I I don't think it's very Catholic. I think that if you go to Notre Dame and you you look for a Catholic education, you can probably find it. But you're not just going to get it by just by virtue of the fact that you're going there. And one of the ways I know this is, again, they were right on the Notre Dame campus, and they asked, there was this girl, and she's walking by, and they said, pardon me, um, can we ask you some questions about right and wrong? And she says, yeah, I'm sure I'm Sure, I'll go ahead and answer them. And so they ask her, they say, well, how do you know what's right or wrong? And she goes, well, gee, um, I guess it just really kind of depends on how you feel. But since everybody feels differently, I guess we really are not able to know what's right and wrong. Pastor of and at least, I mean, at least she, you know, she, she followed, she took her thinking to its logical end. I mean, at least she knew that much, the, the, you know, that right she was saying that since, since right and wrong is determined by the individual's feelings and feelings vary wildly from person to person, therefore we cannot know what right and wrong is. And again, I think that, you know, when someone says something like that, I mean, I'm not, I'm not recommending that anybody do this, but just kind of as a thought experiment, if such a person was there and they said, well, I don't really think we can determine what Right and wrong is, and you we say, okay, you fine, you punch them in the face. And, um, and immediately they're going to be calling the police and pressing assault charges on you, which they should be doing. But my question would be, well, how do you know that that was wrong? You feel that it was wrong because your nose hurts now, but I feel it's okay. And you just got through telling me that right and wrong is determined by how a person feels. But now, all of a sudden, by calling the police, what you're doing is you're appealing to an objective standard. So please visit the website. You're appealing to, to a standard of behavior that offer. everyone is expected to abide by and everyone is expected to obey. And that is you can't go punching people in the bless. face. And so, again, this is, this is kind of an interesting notion that on, on the one hand, you'll have people who want to absolve themselves from any kind of, of moral authority and, um, and, and having to conform themselves to any kind of moral standards of behavior, saying that they can really do whatever they want. I mean, it's a free country. I can do what I want. But then when they find their person or their rights as they perceive them being infringed upon, they're the first then to appeal to an objective standard. And that is to say that it doesn't make any difference how you feel about punching me in the face. It's wrong, which, of course, any reasonable person would believe. But when you have people at one and the same time trying to maintain that 
right and wrong depends on how I feel, but I also appeal to objective standards. You know, in other words, it's totally subjective. It depends on how I feel. And now it's totally objective because I am, I'm appealing to an objective standard, namely the law that says you can't assault people. That's what's causing the, the tremendous moral confusion that, that we live in in our own times. And so what we want to try to do on this installment of Double-Edged Sword is we're going to try to sort through this a little bit. And um, we'll start, as we always do, um, citing the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And when we do this, we have to understand that really there are very, very few places in the scriptures where Jesus sits down and says, okay, here's the deal. And he talks us through a um, you know sort of sort of a moral predicament or something, and gives us kind of the philosophy and 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 sort of addresses things in sort of a theoretical way. Usually, what he's doing is telling stories, and um, and that's probably a good thing because I think that if all Jesus had ever done while he was on Earth, if he'd have just kind of held moral theology classes and 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 given moral discourses to his disciples, they probably would have fallen asleep during most of them, and no one would have listened to him. So instead, you know, um, Jesus tells stories. And so one of the, the stories that Jesus tells in the Gospel of St. Luke in chapter 12, it says, and this is verse, starts in verse 42, Luke 12, 42, in case you want to look it up later. Jesus says, and the Lord said to St. Peter, who then is the faithful and prudent manager whom his master will put in charge of his slaves to give them their allowance of food at the proper time? Blessed is the slave whom his master finds him at work when he arrives. Truly, I tell you, he will put that one in charge of all of his possessions. But if that slave says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and if he begins to beat the other slaves, the men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour that he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Now here's the, here's the critical part here. That slave who knew what his master wanted, but did not prepare himself or do what was wanted, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. From everyone to whom much has been given, much will be required. And from the one to whom much has been entrusted, even more will be demanded. I'm going to go back and read verses 47 and 48 again, because that's what this whole um, installment of Double-Edged Sword is going to center around. Here it goes. You ready? The slave who knew what his master wanted, but did not prepare himself or do what was wanted, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a severe beating will receive a light beating. All right? So in other words, what Jesus is saying is those who know what's expected of them, but they don't do what's expected of them, will receive a severe sentence, will be severely punished, will receive a severe sentence on the day of judgment. Whereas the one who did not know and did what deserves to be severely punished for will be lightly punished. Now, again, Jesus just sort of lays this out in the form of a parable. And then as, then as time goes on, then, you know, people look at this and, and kind of pick it apart and analyze it and talk about it and try to come up with sort of a, a systematic way of, of teaching about this. And this is what we find in the, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Now, again, the reason why I think this is important to go over, and I'm going to sort of um, pick apart some of the, the fallacies that are floating around in our, in our culture at this time, and they've been going around for quite some time, um, is because I, I think we need, to, we need to understand what exactly the church understands and how the church teaches based on the teachings of Jesus as to what exactly is right and what exactly is wrong. 
And essentially what the church teaches is, is that some things are objectively right and some things are objectively wrong. Now, first, let's talk about the difference between objective and subjective. Objective means a, a thing is what it is. And so, for example, I remember the years when I, was, when I was teaching high school, I would tell the kids, you know, if we have a piping hot pepperoni pizza sitting on the desk here, what is objectively true about the pizza? Well, what's objectively true? It's round. It's, you know, the crust is made out of bread of some kind. It has cheese on it. It's got pepperonis on it. It's a pizza, not a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You know, these are things that are objectively true that no one can argue with. If someone sees the pizza sitting there and says, that's a mighty fine roast turkey you got there, it's like either the person needs glasses or they're crazy because it's not a turkey, it's a pizza, all right? Those are things that are objectively true about the pizza. Now, what are some subjective truths or observations about the pizza? So I might say, that sure is a tasty looking pizza. That pizza looks good. It smells good. Now that I've had a bite of it, it tastes good. Those are all subjective things because maybe some people, you know, their stomach gets turned into knots at the smell of a pizza. They can't stand the smell of it or they can't stand the taste of it or whatever. Those are things that are subjectively true. What's happened in our times is people have taken what should be accepted as objective standards of morality and they take it and, and they make it subjective, all right? And so, um, and again, I, as I said at the beginning of the, of the broadcast, you know, some people will, will, it'll be such things as, I don't need that Bible telling me what to do. I don't have to have some pope, some guy in white robes in Rome telling me how to live my life. I make my own choices. That's one way. The other way is we don't really know what right and wrong is. It's just how you feel about it. The other things that we have under the general umbrella of what we call moral relativism, which Pope John Paul II put in his crosshairs when he wrote his encyclical Veritatis Splendor um, you know, some decades ago, where he was basically Pope John Paul II, or we should say Pope St. John Paul the Great, what he was doing was, you know, again, putting in his crosshairs this idea that Truth is just kind of how you feel or whatever you think it is for you. And again, some of the ways that you hear this talked about just kind of in the street, you know, we kind of go to the perennial abortion issue. And you'll hear people say such things as, well, you feel, and feel is always the operative word. They don't very often use the word think. You feel that abortion is wrong, and I respect your feelings, but I feel that abortion is a woman's choice, and you have to respect my feelings. And, and, and so that, you know, there again, see, it just gets reduced down to the level of feelings. Or, you know, we have a bunch of isms that go along with relativism. There are such things as what's called conditionalism and consequentialism, where people will say such things as, well, you know, the abortion itself, or just take an act of thievery, you know, the Seventh Commandment says you shall not steal. Let's, lo let's look at these two things. And um, well, we'll have some other examples coming up here in a second, too. But let's look at these two things. Let's say that you have someone, you have a 15-year-old girl who finds herself pregnant and she's scared to death. Her boyfriend has, you know, dumped her and said, look, you know, I'm going to have no part of this. You're going to ruin my chances at sports and everything. So he's out of the picture. She doesn't want to go to her parents. And so she goes to the, to the counselor at school, um, to the school nurse, especially if it's a public school. And depending on the state that you're in, I think it used to be this way in Kansas, but thanks be to God, the law has been changed. But in some states, they're, you know, they're, they're very proud of the fact that a 15-year-old girl can go to a public high school, go to the school nurse, the school nurse can take her to the local Planned Parenthood clinic, get her an abortion without her parents being notified or, you know, or certainly without their permission or even without their being notified. All right. And so in, in such a case like this, when you say, well, 
Now, this 15-year-old girl who is young, she is confused, she is inexperienced, she's scared, um, she's gotten bad advice from someone who she should be able to trust, the adults at her public school. And if all of a sudden on the way back from the abortion clinic, she gets hit by a train and she's all of a sudden appearing before God for judgment, there's a very simple question. Is she guilty of having murdered her daughter or her son, her little baby? It's a yes or no question. Is she guilty of having murdered her baby? Now, hold on to that and we'll do another example. You have a guy who works for some company, works for you know, whatever, his, whatever his job is, and he has access to goods on the job. I mean, maybe he's working for a retailer and so, you know, he has access to the, the stuff the retailer is selling. You know, maybe he works for, a, you know, for the bank and he's got access to cash, you know, whatever the case might be. And here you have this guy and um, let's, let's take two examples. You got Billy Bob and Bobby Bill. Let's say Billy Bob is just disgruntled. He, you know, he, he, he feels, and again, you know, there's the feeling word again. He feels that he's being treated unfairly by his employer. He feels the employer doesn't appreciate him. The employer doesn't pay him enough. And so he just helps himself. You know, he's figured out a way that he can skim money or he can, you know, take goodies out the back door and he just helps himself to what he wants. So that's Billy Bob. Now we got Bobby Bill. Same deal. Only the deal with Bobby Bill is he, he has a, a child who has been going through some terrible, you know, has some terrible disease. And so, you know, Bobby Bill and his, and his wife, you know, the child's mother, they have to go to, say, they have to go from Hayes to Kansas City three times a week for some kind of a therapy for the child, you know, to, to, to keep the child alive. And so, all, you know, three days a week, you know, they're spending all that money for gasoline and meals and sometimes staying in a motel, you know, and things like that so they can get, their, get the child the help they need. And, you know, they're, they're just really on the ropes. You know, they spent all their savings and they don't really have any more money. And so Bobby Bill helps himself to goodies from work. All right. So Billy Bob is, is stealing from his employer because he just feels like he's entitled to it. And Bobby Bill is stealing from his employer because he's, he's, he's desperate. He's in, 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 in a bad way. Now, what a lot of people, would, they, they would say, they would say, well, the conditions determine whether or not the act is, is sinful or not. And so in the case of Billy Bob, who's stealing just because he's unhappy and disgruntled, some people would say, well, for Billy Bob, that's a sin. But then someone else might say, but for Bobby Bill, since he's, since, you know, since he's desperate and he's, he's trying to, to raise his child and keep his child healthy and alive and so on, well, he's stealing for a good reason. So for him, it wouldn't be a sin. Okay? That's what we call conditionalism. Um, the other one that they look at a lot of times is also called consequentialism. And that is to say we look, at, we look at the consequences of the act and then we ask ourselves, well, if the act brings about a good consequence – then the act is not sinful. If it brings about a bad consequence, then the act is sinful, all right? And so, um, you know, let's kind of go back to the case of the abortion. You know, you've got, you know, maybe you say you've got a 15-year-old girl and, you know, she's, she's scared and she, you know, she's got her whole life in front of her and she has to, you know, she, she wants to be able to finish high school and things like that. And, you know, she gets a bunch of bad advice from adults she should be able to trust and she has her abortion. On the other hand, say you've got a 38-year-old woman who, you know, committed adultery and, you know, she just doesn't want to be bothered with a child. Again, some people might say, well, let's look at the consequences of the action, okay? And there's some conditionalism here as well. 
we look at the consequences of the action. We say, well, by the young girl having the abortion, it enables her to continue going to school and to you know get on with her life and so on and not have to pay for the rest of her life for a bad mistake she made. And so since the consequences that, it, that the abortion brings about in that particular case, it might not be sinful or at least not as sinful as it would be for the, you know, the woman, the 38-year-old woman that was just irresponsible and doesn't want to be bothered with a child. And someone might say, well, that's a little bit cold. And so in that case, you know, maybe she would be, it would be a sin for her or even more sinful, whatever the case might be. But that's what we call consequentialism, where you know, we, we look at the consequences of the act and we ask ourselves, well, if it brings about a good consequence, then the act um, is not considered to be sinful. If it brings about a bad consequence, it is, it is considered to be sinful. All of these things are summarily rejected by Catholic moral theology. And these are things, again, that Pope John Paul II you know, put into his crosshairs and just kind of blew out of the water with Veritatis Splendor. All right? And so um, with those things in mind, you know, we, we have you know, these, these various examples. Here, I'll give you another one. I'm, I, always, I always bring this up. This is always kind of an interesting one to do is I always ask, you know, let's say you have a guy who's born in, in you know, the Mississippi bayous. You know, he's born in the deep south, say, in 1870. So, the, you know, the Civil War was over in 1865. And so he's born into the post-Civil War south. And the whole time he's growing up, all he hears from all these angry adults around him is that Mr. Lincoln had no business freeing those slaves. You know, it says in the Bible, you know, slaves obey your masters. You know, they heard that at their local little Baptist church over and over again that, that um, you know, Mr. Lincoln had no right to free the slaves because it says in the Bible, slavery is ordained by God. So you got this guy who's born into that and his whole life long, that's all he hears. Now, keep in mind, this is 1870, 1880, 1890, 1900, and you're in a very undeveloped part of the country. So there's no TV, there's no internet, there's no radio, there's no nothing. All this guy knows is what he hears from the people around him growing up. And then, you know, he gets of marrying age, he marries, he has children, and he passes these beliefs on to his children. And then he dies. And he dies firmly believing that African-Americans are subhuman and they should have been kept as slaves. There's, you know, there's, in his mind, because that's all he ever heard, he, you know, they, that's what he believed. Now he appears before God for judgment. Again, this is a simple yes or no question. Is he guilty of the sin of racism? All right. Now, it's just like the, it's, it's like the girl with the abortion. Is she guilty of having murdered her child? It's a yes or no question. And the answer to, the, to both questions is yes. In the case of the girl, she is guilty of murder. In the case of our our our, 20, our late 19th, early 20th century, you know, guy from the Deep South, he is guilty of racism. Now you're going, wait a minute, wait a minute, this isn't right, this isn't fair. They didn't know any better. You know, the girl got bad advice. She was young. She was scared. She was ignorant. She didn't know what was going on. You know, our 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 guy from from Mississippi in you know the late 1800s. That's all he knew. How can he be held held responsible for that? I didn't ask if he was going to be held responsible. I asked if they were guilty of that particular sin. All right, and see, and this is this is another one of the ways again that I've I've heard fairly recently. You know, people will say, well, you know, no, I was taught, and some, these people are even saying they were taught, like in in a Catholic school or in a Catholic environment, that if you don't know it's a sin, then it's not a sin. Okay, um, that is dreadfully, terribly wrong. All right. Whether I know something to be sinful or not has no bearing on, on the objective status of that particular act. We're going to believe as Catholics that God has ordained certain things. God has said 
that such things as murder, stealing, lying, or if you go to, if you go to um, the letter to the Galatians um, in, in chapter 5, verses 19 and following, St. Paul says, now, now the works of the flesh are plain. Fornication, that means sex outside of marriage. Impurity, that means like, you know, pornography and stuff like that. Licentiousness, that's the false idea of freedom that I can do whatever I want. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, selfishness, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and the like. I warn you as I have warned you before, those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And again, that comes from Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. You can look it up if you want. But so, you know, these are things... These bad things, fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, and so on, these are things that God has said are bad. These are wrong things. You know, someone who engages in fornication, someone who has the idea that they can do whatever the heck they want. When we have factions and divisions, you know, I don't talk to those people. They don't talk to me because they're not part of my cool group or whatever. When we have these things, those things are objectively wrong because God has said they are wrong, no matter who does them and for what reason. There are other things that are objectively morally good, no matter who does them or for what reason. So, for example, giving alms to the poor, you know, the, the, the corporal works of mercy that we find in Matthew 25, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the sick, welcoming the foreigner, you know, things like that. You know, the corporal works of mercy, the spiritual works of mercy, these are always good things. Now, again, when we go to the Sermon on the Mount, you know, we find some wonderful truths in there where Jesus kind of explains some of this stuff to us. Because we might be sitting there saying, now, wait a minute, hold on. You know, I can feed the poor. I can help the poor. But what if I'm not doing it with a good heart? What if I'm just doing it because people see me and then they think I'm a good person when, in fact, I have great disdain for the poor? Well, Jesus talks about that in the Sermon on the Mount. When, when you give alms, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Do not be like the hypocrites who like to blow a trumpet so people can see that they're getting their alms. I assure you they have already been repaid. Hmm, that's kind of interesting. What Jesus is saying is, is that if I'm helping the poor just because I want other people to look at me and say what a swell guy I am, then I've received my recompense. My recompense is people thinking that I'm a good person. But Jesus says, otherwise expect no recompense from your heavenly father. And so if I do good, so other, only so that others will see me. Now, a lot of times we have to do good to set good examples. There's nothing wrong with that. But if the only reason why I'm doing good is so people will look at me and go, oh, isn't he just a swell guy? Isn't he a nice guy? Look how he helps people out. And if that's the only reason why I'm doing that, then I've got my reward. You know, people on earth saying, you know, he's a nice guy. But I will not be rewarded by God in heaven. You know, Jesus says that. And so, again, if I help the poor, if I feed the hungry, no matter what my motivation, that action is objectively morally good. And so, and again, you know, someone might say, well, but you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Yes, I might be doing it for the wrong reasons. And the way the, the and where the justice comes in is on the day of judgment. God will not recognize that as a good thing that I did. You know, there's a whole bunch of places in the scriptures in the, in the book of Tobit. I mean, the archangel Raphael says, almsgiving atones for sins. And um, the book, in the book of Sirach, it says the same thing, that um, one of the ways that we can atone for our sins, that, you know, that we can um, you know, make up for the, for, the, for the time that we have to do in purgatory for, um, for sins that have been forgiven in confession, but we still have that disordered attachment to earthly things, is by giving alms. And, um, and so you know, there, 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 is, there, is a, there is a spiritual benefit to helping the poor. But if I'm doing it just for my own, to make myself look good, I lose the spiritual benefit. 
So there are some things that are always good, no matter who does them and for what reason. There are some things that are always bad, no matter who does them and for what reason. And so, you know, again, you might have someone who is brought up in a culture like ours that basically says, you know, go out and fornicate all you want. Just make sure you have safe sex, whatever the heck that means. And so you have a person that's, that grows up and, and their entertainment, their television, their school, everything is telling them, you know, hey, you know, just grab a handful of condoms and it's all good. And that person, you know, lives a life of, of, of licentiousness and fornication and, and so on. And they have to go answer to God. They're going to find out when they see God face to face. Oh, I was told something that was wrong. All right. You know, this, this business that I was told thinking that I could just do whatever I wanted. That's not that's not correct because there are some things that are always wrong, no matter who does them and for what reason. And so things like theft and lying and dishonoring our parents. And, you know, again, that laundry list of things that St. Paul, you know, listed, fornication, idolatry, drunkenness, carousing, things like these, you know, those things are objectively morally wrong, no matter who does them and for what reason. And so, again, I think a lot of it is just kind of trying to recover what we mean by objective and subjective to kind of help us sort through some of this stuff. Now, we're going to take a little break, and when we get back, I'm going to go to the catechism, and we'll, um, again, we've looked at some of the biblical things, and we've talked about some, some theoreticals, but now we'll go to the catechism when we get back here after the break, and we'll um, check, some of these, check out some of the official teachings from the church, and hopefully we can put all this into some kind of a perspective and make some sense out of all of it. We'll take a short break right here. You have been listening to Father Fred Gatchett, pastor of Sacred Heart Cathedral in Salina, Kansas, and vicar general for the Diocese of Salina. You're listening to the Double-Edged Sword Program here on the fine family of Divine Mercy Radio Catholic Stations, 105.7 KMDG Hayes, 88.1 KRTT Great Bend, 101.7 KJDM Lindsborg Salina, 89.1 KGOH Colby, and the founding station where it all began, 88.1 KVDM Hayes. Howdy, folks. We are back. We're going to be joined again by Father Fred Gatchett on the Double-Edged Sword program here on the Fine Family of Divine Mercy Catholic Radio Stations, 105.7 KMDG Hayes, 88.1 KRTT Great Bend, 101.7 KJDM Lindsborg Salina, 89.1 KGOH Colby, and 88.1 KVDM Hayes. Here on the Double-Edged Sword program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. And now we'll get back to Father Fred Gatchett. And we've been talking um, on, on this installment of Double-Edged Sword, it kind of was sort of what makes right, right, and wrong, wrong, kind of in the, in the face of a whole bunch of crazy ideas that are out there where, you know, some folks seem to think that, well, right and wrong is kind of depends on how you feel. Or right and wrong depends on the conditions under which a certain act is done. Or right and wrong depends on the, con- on the consequences of the action. If it brings about something good, then no matter what it is, it's good. And if it brings about something bad, no matter what it is, it's bad. And so, you know, we're kind of looking at these things and kind of trying to pick them apart. You know, these are all, again, manifestations of what's called relativism, that rather than having absolute norms and absolute standards of what is good and bad and right and wrong, it's all relative. It depends on the feelings, it depends on experience, it depends on the consequences, depends on the conditions. Um, It depends on an individual's knowledge. You know, again, this idea that, well, if you don't know it's a sin, then it's not a sin. No, it doesn't matter. God has ordained some things to be good and some things to be bad. What we know or do not know does not make the act good or bad. That doesn't matter. But what it does, um, as we saw here in the Gospel of St. Luke, 
when we read from chapter uh, chapter 12, especially verses 47 and 48, we kind of see where all this stuff kind of comes in, where it's all going to kind of come into view. Now, what I'm going to I'm going to read a little bit out of the catechism here to you, and we're going to talk about some of this stuff. In paragraph 1776, um, this is a, a direct, they, they lifted this in the catechism directly out of Gaudium et Spes from Vatican II. This is from Gaudium, Gaudium et Spes, paragraph or chapter 16, where it says, Deep within his conscience, man discovers a law which he has not laid upon himself, but which he must obey. That's what we mean by objective. It's been laid upon us by God. Its voice ever calling him to love and to do what is good and to avoid evil. It sounds in his heart at the right moment. For man has in his heart a law inscribed by God. His conscience is man's most secret core in his sanctuary. There he is alone with God, whose voice echoes in his depths. Okay? So again, that comes from Vatican II. Deep within our conscience, we find a law that we didn't come up with ourselves, but we must obey. All right? And so that's kind of the beginning of our understanding of the fact that there is, there is objective standards of right and wrong. Now, one of the things that um, having that conscience means then in paragraph 1780, it says the dignity of the human person, that is our dignity as human beings, implies and requires uprightness of moral conscience. Conscience includes the perception of the principles of morality called synderesis. That's a $9 word in case you ever want to know what that one is. Um, their application in given circumstances by practical discernment of reasons and goods. And finally, judgment about the concrete acts yet to be performed or already performed. Truth about the moral good stated in the law of reason is recognized practically and concretely by prudent judgment of conscience. We call that man prudent who chooses in conformity with this judgment. In other words, what this is saying is, is we say, yeah, I have my conscience, but the conscience also has to be rightly formed. You know, we can't just sit there and say, well, my conscience, I'm okay with stealing from my employer. The guy's a dirtbag. He rips everybody else off. I'm ripping him off, you know. Turnabout's fair play, and I feel okay with that. And that's a sign of, an, of a malformed conscience. That, um, the, you know, because a, a rightly formed conscience is one that understands that God is the one who has dictated to us what is right and wrong and good and bad. And so um, e- even if, you know, you're, you're working for someone or, you know, the, the whole thing is just hopelessly corrupt and crooked, nonetheless, we want to stay above that fray and do what's right. In 1781, it, uh, the catechism says, conscience enables us to assume responsibility for the acts that we perform. If a man commits evil, the just judgment of conscience can remain with him as a witness to the universal truth of the good at the same time as the evil of the particular choice. The verdict of the judgment of conscience remains a pledge of hope and mercy. In attesting to the fault committed, it calls to mind the forgiveness that must be asked, the good that must still be practiced, and the virtue that must be constantly cultivated with the grace of God. Okay, so we have our conscience then, you know, tells us to assume responsibility for what we've done. And one of the things, that, again, in a, in a world that champions feelings above everything else, if I feel guilty, well, feeling guilty makes me feel bad. Therefore, since feeling guilty makes me feel bad, feeling guilty must be bad. That's not true. Guilty people are good people. A good person feels guilt. All right. A bad person or a crazy person like Charles Manson does not feel guilty. Good people feel guilty. And again, as the catechism says here, that, you know, God has engineered us such that when we feel guilt, you know, that we experience that to kind of sit and think about what we did. 
And therefore, then, that's a, and it says it's a pledge of hope and mercy because it calls to mind that we have to go ask forgiveness, that we must still practice good, and that we must constantly continue to try to try to cultivate virtue, all right? And so, you know, we can see there then, you know, in these little parts of the moral conscience that, um, that we're talking about, that, um, that our conscience has to be properly formed and that we can't just go off and just say and do whatever we want or worse, whatever we feel, but these things have to be guided by objective standards that come to us from Almighty God. Now, remember, we talked last in the, in the, in the previous um, segment of the program that, again, you'll have folks that are going, oh, wait a minute, you know, I don't, I don't believe this objective stuff. I mean, I think, you know, I feel that if, if what I'm doing doesn't make me feel bad, then, it, then it's good for me, works for me, as people say. Well, then I say, okay, fine. You know, what happens if I steal your money? It works for me. I like having the money. And, the, the, and the, you'll notice then at that point, that person's not going to go, gosh, I guess you're right. I guess I'll just have to do without my money. They're not going to do that. If I steal their money and my, my justification is exactly what they've been saying, my conscience isn't bothered by me stealing money. It certainly isn't bothered by stealing your money because I don't like you. Well, then the person is going to immediately call the police and, uh, and appeal to an objective standard, that is the law of the state, that says you can't steal other people's money. And so you can see, again, this is why things are so confused, because at one and the same time, people want to have subjective morality because it lets them do whatever they want, but then they want to be protected by objective morality from other people's subjective morality, if that makes any sense. Actually, I think it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense to me. Now, later on in the Catechism, when we get to, to 1852 to about 1860, I'm not going to read all this, but um, it, it talks about different kinds of sin, all right? And basically, we, we read in, in 1 John, you know, back, down, back in about chapter 3 or chapter 5, I can't remember which, it's in chapter 5, um, John says, all wrongdoing is sin. There is some wrongdoing that is mortal and some that is not mortal, all right? And so in the scriptures, we have the word mortal and not mortal. In Catholic land, we say mortal and venial. What is a mortal sin? Mortal sin kills sanctifying grace in our souls. And if we die in an unrepentant state of mortal sin, you go to hell for all eternity. No time off for good behavior, no parole. That's it. We're just in hell for good. But the thing of it is, if we fall into mortal sin, we should, while we're still on earth, we, have no, you know, we don't want to lose hope because we can always go to confession. And if we're, if we're sincerely repentant and sorry about what we've done, then the sacrament of reconciliation, then restores sanctifying grace to our soul, puts us back in the state of grace with God. And again, if we should, then if we die in this state of grace, then of course we're candidates for heaven, and that's a good deal. Venial sin, even though it, it offends and wounds the, the charity and the grace that's in our soul, but it's still there. You know, we're still, you know, we're still kind of in the state of grace, so we're somewhat sick. Um, that's why when we, go to, when we go to Mass, if we receive communion on Sunday and all we have is if we're in the state of venial sin and we have the intention of wanting our sins forgiven, you know, the, the sacrament of the Eucharist, I always tell people it's not a prize for the perfect, it's medicine for the sick. And so um, if we won't receive the, the blessed sacrament in the state of venial sin, then it will take away those venial sins and put us back in the state of grace. On the other hand, if we're in the state of mortal sin, if our soul is dead, well, again, you can imagine if you have a dead body and you hook them up to an IV machine and you start pumping, you know, um, medicines into their dead veins or you start jamming pills down their dead throat, nothing's going to happen to them. I mean, they're dead. And so it's kind of the same thing. If, we're, if our soul is dead because of mortal sin, then you know, we can receive all the sacraments we want. It won't do anything for us because the soul is in no position to be able to receive the sacramental graces that come from those sacraments. But anyway, 
when we look in paragraph 1857, it says, for a sin to be mortal, three conditions must together be met. That means uh, one in the same time. Mortal sin is a sin whose object is grave matter. It means it has to be something serious. It's committed with full knowledge, and we know what we're doing, and we deliberately consent of it, all right? And so there's three conditions for mortal sin. The action itself has to be objectively serious. We know it's serious, and we freely do it anyway, all right? Now, in 1859, mortal sin requires full knowledge and complete consent. It presupposes the knowledge of the sinful character of the act and of its opposition to God's law. It also implies consent sufficiently deliberate to be a personal choice. Feigned ignorance or hardness of heart do not diminish, but rather increase the voluntary character of sin. That's pretty serious stuff there. That is to say, if, if, I'm, if I'm trying to fake things because, you know, God knows everything. God reads into the hearts and souls. You can fool some of the people some of the time. You can fool sometimes all the people all the time. I mean, you can probably fool me all the time. If you fool me, you ain't fooled much. But you can't fool God. And so when we're kind of standing before Almighty God and going, oh, gee, God, I didn't know, he's going to go, don't give me that. You did too. You knew exactly what you were doing. And so, um, or hardness of heart, that's another one where we just kind of get to the point where I've stolen so much, I've lied so much, I've fornicated so much, I've looked at so much pornography, I've, you know, torn apart so many people's reputations, it just doesn't bother me to do it anymore. In fact, I just do it without even thinking about it. Well, again, you know, when we have hardness of heart and when we're faking ignorance, uh, again, the catechism says that increases the voluntary character of the sin. It makes it even worse, all right? Now, here's the biggie, and this is the one that goes back to what Jesus said in Luke 12, verses 47 to 48. I'm going to review those verses in Luke 12 here real quick. You ready? Jesus said, The slave who knew what his master wanted, but did not prepare himself or do what was wanted, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. All right. So in other words, if we know what's going on, if we have a formed conscience and we deliberately say, I'm going to do what I'm not supposed to do, then on the day of judgment, we can, we can expect a severe sentence. On the other hand, if you have someone, again, like my, you know, my late 19th century racist guy or like the, you know, the young girl getting the abortion with a bunch of bad advice and everything, if they don't know any better, then, there, then it says while, while the action, while the racism, while the murder of the child deserves a severe beating, deserves a severe sentence, will receive a light beating. In other words, will receive a lighter sentence. Now, here's what the Catechism says about this in paragraph 1860. It says, unintentional ignorance. That is to say, you know, the person is ignorant of the truth, of the objective truth of the moral law, and they just, they just don't know. It says, can diminish or even remove the imputability of a grave offense. All right? Now, that's, that, again, that's where the, the writers of the Catechism have taken an idea out of Jesus' parable, and now they've transcribed that or they've transformed that into sort of a doctrinal statement. And that is to say, then, that if you have someone, and, and again, th- this, is, this is the difference between Catholic theology and a lot of the, the nonsense that goes on in the, in the world at large. Catholic theology is going to say that some things are always good no matter who does them and for what reason. Some things are always bad no matter who does them and for what reason. 
And so, like I said, in the case of our late 19th century racist or of our 21st century teenager that gets the abortion, and you say, yes, they are guilty of racism. She is guilty of having murdered her child. And people jump up and go, but that's not fair. They didn't know any better. How can, how can you know, God consign them to hell for something they didn't know? Well, first of all, I never said God's going to consign anybody to hell for anything yet. All right? And, but, but the thing of it is, I think we rightly, I mean, be, because we're made in the image and likeness of God and because that law is burned into our hearts and souls, we rightly kind of kick back on that and go, that just doesn't seem right. Why should that person be held accountable? You know, why should that person suffer for something that they, they did not know was wrong? And out of that comes goofy ideas such as, well, if you don't know it's a sin, then it's not a sin for you. Or... If, if the consequences are okay, then it's not a sin. Or if the conditions are different, then it's not a sin. No, none of that stuff is true. The, the, the racism of the guy, of the example I used, or the abortion, those are objectively morally wrong, no matter who does them and for what reason. And so on the day of judgment, when this guy appears before God for judgment, and God says, well, you know, what about these racist attitudes you held? And the guy can look at his creator square in the eyes and say, you know, God, now that I see you, and now that I see the love that is God, now I see the truth that is God, now that I see the justice and the generosity and the kindness and the mercy that is God, I was just dead wrong. And God will say, you certainly were, but you didn't know any better. And so again, as the catechism says, I will read it again. Unintentional ignorance can diminish or even remove the imputability of a grave offense. Imputability, that's a $9 word for responsibility. And so what happens is, when, you know, when this guy appears before God for judgment, he's guilty. He's guilty of the sin of racism. Either he had racist attitudes or he did not. He did, therefore he is guilty. But the, you know, the, the, with the justice of God and God seeing into the heart and understanding everything perfectly, he's going to say, but you know, pal, you didn't know any better. And so therefore, I do not hold you accountable for this sin. It is still a sin and it is a sin for him. But God's not going to hold him accountable for it or at least not completely accountable. Maybe in the recesses of the guy's heart, because the guy's made in the image and likeness of God, and God makes us all to be brothers and sisters, maybe there was a little bit of a spark. There was a little kind of a gnawing sense that whenever he would hear all kinds of bad comments made about African Americans, he would kind of, maybe there was a little bit of a kickback in his belly, kind of going, eh, this just doesn't seem right, but it's what I've been taught, so what the heck. Well, there... He there he kind of brings upon himself a little bit of guilt because he had a little bit of a sense that God had given him and he chose to ignore it. All right. It's the same thing with with the 15 year old girl in 2015 or whatever, you know, in our times. If you have, you know, a, a teenage girl that runs off and gets an abortion because she's scared and she's ignorant and she's gotten bad advice from adults that she should be able to trust and everything. When she appears before God for judgment, you know, God's going to say, she's going to say, God, I didn't know what else to do. I was scared. And God's, I know, honey, I know that's okay. You know, um, you know, we can, we'll, we'll work this out, you and me, um, be, you know, with, with God's justice and with God's mercy. Now, the thing of it is, again, I just don't really see how it's possible in our times for anyone to think that having an abortion is like eating a popsicle, you know that they have to know there had there's some kind of a there's some kind of a moral dimension to it. Now again, as the Catechism says, unintentional ignorance, you know these other various things on the outside, can reduce the responsibility or even remove it completely. But the thing of it is, you know, on the day of judgment, the 15 year old girl is still guilty of having murdered her baby. 
or as is the abortion doctor and as is the the you know the the school nurse that took her to the abortion clinic there's a whole there's plenty of guilt to go around here for everything but um but the thing of it is is that you know her her but her imputability her responsibility for that act according to the judgment of god will probably diminish quite a bit as the catechism says it can be even completely removed depending on on the the extent to where the person you know knew or did not know what the heck was going on all right so I think that when we look at these things, I think it's important for us to, as Catholics, um, as a culture, to sort of try to recapture this idea of objective and subjective right and wrong. You know, the, 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 way, that the, the way that we've kind of fallen into this pit of rel- moral relativism um, has taken on a whole bunch of different kind of masks, you know. And like I said, some of them is things like conditionalism and consequentialism. It's the conditions around the action that determine whether it's right or wrong. It's the consequences of the action that determines whether it's right or wrong. It's my particular experience of the action or my particular feelings of the action that determine whether it's right or wrong. It's my particular knowledge or my particular conscience. If I don't know that it's wrong, then it's not wrong for me. But if you know that it's wrong and you do it, then it's wrong for you. No, you know, Catholic morality, Catholic theology says rubbish. That is not true. If it's wrong for me, it's wrong for you. Where there's room for discussion is when we appear before God for judgment for this kind of stuff is, you know, is God going to hold us completely accountable for this or not? And that's, you know, again, that's the big question that for, that's up for grabs. I think that um, one of the things that, again, that we have to keep in mind that whenever we, whenever we talk about you know, unintentional ignorance and things like that, the Catechism goes on to say in paragraph 1860, no one is deemed to be ignorant of the principles of the moral law which are written on the conscience of every man. That is to say, no matter where we go in the history of the world and no matter where we go in the world to this day, every culture doesn't make any difference if you're Christian, Jewish, Buddhist, Hindu, Islam, you know, Muslim, or you, know, you worship the monkey god in the Amazon jungle, whatever it is. Every culture says you can't take other people's stuff. You know, it's wrong to steal other people's things. Everybody believes that. You know, every culture says, you know, you can't murder people. You know, you can't just go take someone's life. Every culture says, you know, kind of puts limits on people's sexual behavior. You can't just go out and act out sexually however you want. Every culture values telling the truth. Every culture values um, moral um, characteristics such as bravery and loyalty and character and integrity, things like that, no matter where we go. So those are the things that are written on our, on our soul by God. And so, you know, we can't just kind of write that off and say, well, I just didn't know because, you know, the catechism says no one can be deemed ignorant of that because we have those things by God just like we have 10 fingers and 10 toes and a couple of kidneys and a couple of eyes. I mean, they just come standard equipment with being born, all right? It goes on to say, the promptings of feelings and passions can also diminish the voluntary free character of the offense, as can external pressures and pathological disorders. Sin committed through malice by deliberate choice of evil is the gravest. So in other words, the promptings of feelings and passions can diminish the voluntary free character. That is to say, if we're not thinking straight, if we're you know, just kind of caught up in the heat of the moment and everything, those are things that, again, if it, if it takes away from the human, char- from the human um, quality of the act, and human quality means that we understand what it is and we do it as an act of freedom, all right? Anything that takes away from those things will diminish the imputability or the responsibility of the sin. In other words, that when we appear before God for judgment, that there will be, that we'll have to answer for that somehow. 
But at the same time, it doesn't take the sin itself and make it any less. The sin is what it is. Or the act of virtue. I think we sometimes we talk about sin so much, we forget about acts of virtue. Um, there's also great acts of virtue, again, such as feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and visiting the sick and visiting the imprisoned and things like that. Those things that are in Matthew 25, those corporal works of mercy, or we look at the spiritual works of mercy, such as to admonish the sinner, to bear wrongs patiently, you know, to pray for the living and the dead, you know, things like that. Those are always good things, no matter who does them and for what reason. Now, you know, we might be doing them for a bad reason, in which case there's no recompense from God, but the act itself is still good. And again, I think, you know, the whole point of this, if you got nothing else out of this broadcast, I'm hoping that you're starting to understand that the, you know, really what separates Catholic thinking from that of the rest of the world is that we believe in objective standards of right and wrong. And the thing of it is, as I demonstrated earlier, even the people who say that they don't believe in objective standards, once their standards are violated, the, the first thing they're going to do is look for an objective standard so they can hold you accountable. All right. Like I said, you know, if you go up and punch someone, you know, they're going to on the one hand, they're going to say, hey, I can do whatever I want. It's my feeling. It's my choice. Don't pull that Bible out and rub it in my face. I can do whatever I want. And I go, OK, I can do whatever I want too. here. Bam, you punch them. Well, the first thing they're going to do rightfully is, you know, report you to the police for assault, which they should do. But here, you know, at the one and the same time, they're claiming total subjectivity that feelings and, and, and you know, that individual experience is what determines what right and wrong is, until they are the ones who are offended or wronged, then they immediately look for an objective standard that they can appeal to so that you know, the, the being wronged, you know, the offenses at least stop, and hopefully even you might even get punished for it. You know? So again, those are some things to think about. Thanks for tuning in. You have been listening to Father Fred Gatchett, pastor of Sacred Heart Cathedral in Salina and the vicar general for the Diocese of Salina. And you've been listening to the Double-Edged Sword program right here on the fine family of Divine Mercy Catholic radio stations, 105.7 KMDG Hayes, 88.1 KRTT Great Bend, 101.7 KJDM Linsborg Salina, 89.1 KGOH Colby, and our flagship station where it all began, 88.1 KVDM Hayes. And here on the Double-Edged Sword program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. We invite you to visit our website at dvmercy.com and check out archived installments of the Double-Edged Sword program, which are locally produced here, right here on Divine Mercy Radio. So please visit the website, check out all the benefits of Catholic Radio has to offer, consider donating, and keep listening. Thank you, and God bless.